0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
1: Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond, I'm Lucy Hounsome, and I'm Megan Lee. The Tale of Cinderella or the Cat Cinderella, or Ashen and Puddle, is a story that is found in many cultures throughout the world. The extraneous elements may change. Sometimes there's a ball, sometimes not. There could be murder, a nut tree, a fairy godmother, or the kindly spirit of a deceased mother. But the central theme of rags to riches, from oppressed to princess, is always there. What is it about Cinderella that appeals to so many people? Is it because we all root for the underdog? Is it just for a love of social justice? And what happens if Cinderella's wishes aren't from a benevolent fairy godmother, but a part of a fiendish bargain? To answer these questions and more, we're delighted to welcome J.J. Harwood to the show. Hello, Joe. thank you so much for joining us, and do tell our listeners a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, thank you for having me. Um, hi, everyone. My name is JJA Harwood, but please call me Jo. J.J. is a real mouthful. Um, I'm the author of The Shadow in the Glass. Uh, This is my debut novel. Um, It's a dark retelling of Cinderella, which I've set in Victorian London. And um, it's the story of Eleanor, a young woman who's forced into domestic service by the family who adopted her and who meets her fairy godmother, who offers her seven wishes to do whatever she pleases with. Um, But there's a sting in the tail for those wishes and things very rapidly, stop going according
1: to plan, to say the least. <laughs> yes, it's it's definitely a, a dark retelling of Cinderella. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean. I love the fact that she has seven wishes to play with, so that's great because three wishes is really stingy. Um, but obviously <laughs> the fact that each wish costs her something which you don't necessarily find in a Cinderella no- novel. Usually it's like, here are your wishes, off you go, and your beauty and your virtue are your are your payment for getting these wishes. But in this case, you seem to have woven the stories of Cinderella and Faustus together. So I wondered what prompted you to think that those two stories would go really well together and that the fairy godmother should be not as godmotherly as you would expect.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, personally speaking, and I may just be uh, showing my inner cynic here, but I've always just been quite suspicious of all of those stories where people go around handing out magic for free. Like, what's the catch there? There's a catch. We know there's a catch. Um, and um, the more I thought about that, um, the more I realised I really like the idea of a rags-to-riches story having a cost because so often a rags-to-riches story is... Held up as something that should be emulated, and um, it's the sort of it's not always seen as a story which has a lot of downsides with it. But what I set out to do in Shadow was show that um, this particular rag to riches story can have like a real cost to it, like a very heavy toll to pay. And um, Eleanor still goes ahead with it.
0: Is there a kind of moral there or like a comment that you're making on human nature that despite <laughs> the terrible choices or the, the the outcomes that will happen when you make those choices, that we'll still make those choices anyway? I
2: think, if anything, it's more like, what's that saying? Um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And um, the more wealth that anyone acquires, like the more powerful they get. And once you get past a certain point, um, I think it's very hard for anybody to hold on to what really makes them a good person. And so that's definitely what Eleanor struggles with throughout the book.
3: So just mentioning, you know, you already touched on the the rags to riches element. Um, why do you think this, that particular narrative structure is found in so many fairy tales, folk tales. I mean, what is it about that transition of power, I suppose, that appeals to people?
2: Um, well, I think to a certain extent, everybody wants a better life for themselves. And um, the idea of that one lucky break that opens a bunch of doors um, and everything all falls into place after that is um, very, very appealing and quite comforting, really. Um it's linked to a lot of ideas about meritocracy as well. The idea that if you work hard enough and behave well enough, like you'll be rewarded for that eventually, which again is a really comforting idea. Um, but I also think there's an element of every rags to Riches story being fundamentally about uh, breaking out of a power structure and being able to sort of, you've now got license to remake that for yourself, which I think is, Really, really appealing. I mean, obviously, we've not
3: lived in a feudal society for some time, but you know, I say that, and I went to a village today, which is owned by the lord of the manor, and everybody <laughs> uh, has to rent their houses from the lord of the manor. So, okay, I, Ooh, I take that oh, okay. back. You know, like this, these places still exist um, in in the UK. Uh, but the whole point is that uh, you know that a feudal system kind of the middle classes they don't really exist in that kind of system you, you tend to have the very very poor and the very very rich and so something like rags to riches like it's in the title there there is no there's no middle ground here there's no middle class there's no there's this there's there's either extreme poverty uh, or extreme wealth um, and those kind of i i suppose you know, is it the two ends of the the class spectrum that make the story so compelling to to read to see how is it possible to jump between these two extremes
2: yes yeah I think the idea of contrast does definitely make that story more appealing because if you were going from middle class to upper middle class that's sort of like that's just a sort of shuffling upwards really isn't it that's not really the same kind of leaps and bounds that um people really get quite so excited about and um that was part of the reason why I chose to set the book in Victorian London as well because the rags and the riches are first of all sometimes right next to each other and they're also so clearly defined and visible in um a way that you know I was about to say in a way that isn't necessarily present
1: in modern society but kind of is so Lucy talked about extremes just now, and um, obviously in the original Cinderella, she goes from literally a scullery maid to a princess. But I quite liked how your heroine, Eleanor, she, she was kind of, I want to say kind of middle class. The person she wanted to marry, Charles, he and his family were made to be very clear that they were still... Struggling, they weren't like the most richest. And as she sort of goes through her journey, she meets people like Mrs. Cleary and um, the lady at the end who gives the party, and they are super rich. Um, And I just thought it was quite interesting that for once you had a Cinderella who was kind of happy with her station. She wasn't really, you know, going, well, actually, now that I've got another three wishes left, I'm going to wish myself up to this status. Um, I thought that was quite an interesting, you know, thing to do. So, do you think that's one of her redeeming features that she's, you know, your heroine that she's quite happy with? she's got her heart set on sort of Charles and the lifestyle rather than the money behind it.
2: Yes, I I do think so. Like it's definitely something um, which I felt that she needed to have as a character because some of the choices that she made are uh, questionable to say the least, but having that kind of um, more positive motivation to um, be with the people she loves to protect the people she loves um, and, Um, having that be part of the reason why she made the choices and the wishes that she made definitely kept her from going off into more outright villainy. Um, I do think that um, with Eleanor, what I was going for was that it wasn't so much about um, the idea of wealth that she really wanted, but the idea of security. And obviously that is tied up with wealth because um you don't have to worry as much stuff when you' or you when you're financially stable um but fundamentally, what she wants is the kind of stability and security that that kind of lifestyle can provide.
0: I wanted to circle back to something you said um earlier about meritocracy because mm-hmm. like not to get too far into my personal life here, but <laughs> honestly, this is something I have had significant amounts of therapy about. Uh, <laughs> not kidding. Uh, basically, you know, this idea that we're all kind of taught that if you work hard, you'll get rewards, you'll reap rewards, you'll succeed, uh, things will happen for you. And then when we leave school, we're kind of shoved out into the the real world, as it were. And suddenly it turns out that meritocracy is a bunch of bullshit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It is not like that in the real world, asshole. I can work so hard. I can do, you know, I could do the best work in in, in a kind of objective, as objective as it could be, sense, but still might not become. The you know I might not get the promotion because because gender inequality gender inequality just general narcissism nepotism jealousy who knows why you might not get that promotion but it just isn't about necessarily being the best doing the best work working hard so on and so forth so I find it interesting that when you have these kinds of rags to riches and so on there isn't more bitterness <laughs> but you know like cinderella and and I'm not saying it's like a, a bad thing but in cinderella she's treated abominably that in in you know the yeah. original story and yet she manages to not only does she continue to just work hard to basically suck it up and get on with it, it's very um you know Britain keep calm and carry on it's it's very bad oh it is isn't it <laughs> it is and and she just kind of accepts her lot in life and she never asks for too much more. she just sort of yeah, she just goes on with it, and then she because she's such a good person and keeps herself in her place, she gets these wishes and it kind of always annoyed me that she wasn't <laughs> angrier. <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: honestly, same here. That was part of the reason um, why I decided to, um, to portray Ellen's character in the way that I did because personally speaking, I would find it very hard to be in that kind of situation and not feel angry about it like, because, as you say, she was treated abominably. And it would be a normal human reaction for her to have negative feelings about that. Um, What really bothered me about the original fairy tale was that her goodness and kindness as a protagonist seemed to be demonstrated in the fact that she didn't have those feelings, or at least that in the bare bones fairy tale, we didn't get to hear about those feelings. And that really bothered me because you can still be a good and kind person and be angry and be sad and want people to treat you better.
0: I'm glad you said that because I'm I'm very angry and bitter and sad. And-
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. no. Uh, <laughs> but we all think you're a perfect princess, Megan. So it Aww. all balances out.
2: Oh, well. Aww. Aww.
1: Talking about rags to riches, one of the things that you do tend to get in Cinderella is the fact that she was rich beforehand and then has been reduced to a scullery maid. So do you think it makes a difference to the story as to whether Cinderella's riches are brand new ones that she's never had before or that they're riches that have been recovered? I mean, do you think that's going to affect a character's motivation and how they portray themselves depending on whether they've never had anything before or they've had something and then they're trying to get it back?
2: Um, I do think that that would have an effect. Um, I think when it comes to the sort of uh, recovery of wealth in the story of Cinderella. It's like, I think what that establishes um, from the beginning of the story is that something has been upended, and by the end of the story, it will be set right again, which again can be quite a comforting idea. But what I always quite struggle with um, with the idea of Cinderella is that um, whether her riches are bestowed upon her or recovered, um, she doesn't actually do a lot to get them herself in some ways like I wonder how much of a difference it would really make because you know they're handed to her by somebody else either way
1: well you know it's really interesting because I was researching Cinderella for an article the other day and I just love fairy stories anyway but (laughs) one of the oldest stories actually has Cinderella and she has an unpleasant stepmother but she has a really nice governess And the governess says, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if your father was married to me? And think of all the wonderful things we could do together. Um, But what a shame your stepmother's in the way. Why didn't you kill her? So Cinderella goes to her stepmother (laughs) and says, oh, I need a dress out of that really deep chest. Could you get it out for me, please? And the stepmother opens up the chest, puts her head in, and Cinderella slams the chest down on her head and kills her and then the stepmother, the governess comes along and marries and goes oh by the way Cinderella I've got these three other daughters they're all better than you and now you're a scullery maid so I think in some of the older ones she is a bit more proactive and I think some of the other ones they should they sort of she tricks the, um, the sisters and goes, oh, did you have a nice time at the ball? Tell me all about it, rather than just sitting there weeping in the corner. And I <laughs> felt you kind of you know, got a bit more of a, a proactive Cinderella. I, I really got the impression when, you, when I was reading it that what you wanted was a woman who, who, doesn't, who does rely on wishes, but is going out and kind of getting her, her destiny back for herself and is only resorting to the wishes when she really can't do that.
2: It's interesting that you uh, bring up that particular version of Cinderella, because that was actually what sparked the whole idea of Shadow Off for me. Um, that's the Giambattista Bautista Bastille version, I think, right? Um,
1: I think so, yeah. I, I must admit, I yes. read quite a few in one day. They all blurred a bit. <laughs> yeah, It wasn't Perrault, was it? Because he had all those lovely moral- morals at the end. But yeah, you're no, right. No.
2: Um, but yeah, that was the one which sparked it all off for me, because like, I remember reading this version of the story and thinking... Oh, hello. You're a much more interesting version of the character. How did you get from being so pure and kind and sweet and good to going all the way into murder, like a whole murder? Like, I was fascinated by that. And so, yeah, that was definitely the kind of character that I wanted Eleanor to be when I was writing the book. Somebody who does have a certain amount of belief in wishes and things like that, and hope that things are all going to turn out to be okay, but absolutely isn't afraid to get our hands dirty if they don't.
1: Well, I think we got the sappy Cinderella. I mean, Disney, obviously, but the Grimms as well, putting their sort of more moral and patriarchal spin on it. And he's like, oh, we can't possibly have a heroine who's going out and, you know, sorting herself out or being smart and clever. She has to be good and she gets her her riches through kindness and goodness and little mice, (laughs) you know. Um, So I think it's really interesting that you know, in those days, the morals were girls are kind and good and nice. And we're coming back round to the time when actually girls are the ones that slam their stepmother's heads in the chest and go out and do it for themselves. It's uh, (laughs) it's an interesting take on society.
0: I mean, going back to to what you originally said, Charlotte, about, um, you know, whether coming to riches kind of fresh versus losing them and then getting them back again, I think kind of links into this because a lot of you know as we mentioned before like the Cinderella that most people know she kind of she gets these wishes and good things happening because she somehow deserves it after all her good behavior and all the things that she's basically put up with Um, and I wonder about stories where you know someone has lost the riches and then gets them back if it has kind of more of an entitlement vibe because someone who's had riches presumably, in a lot of these stories, again, it'd be because their parents or their father or whatever was a gentleman or, you know, had acquired wealth. Rarely it would be because they were an entrepreneur and self-made person. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then if they lose it, it's it's somehow – you know, it's never in their control. It's someone else. You know, the evil stepmother came and took it all away. Yeah. Um, and therefore, but so they deserve that money. It is rightfully theirs. They are entitled to it. And I think that also kind of changes the the dynamic of the story again because someone who is coming from nothing and just kind of works their way up is very different to someone who had something, lost it, and feels like, they have had what is rightfully theirs taken away from them perhaps it's because the the people who are writing it
1: i imagine i don't know the grims were they rich but if you are from that society and that level of society do you think perhaps it's an element of well it's all right if one of us falls down and and he claws his way back up but we can't really have the proles kind of getting all their money and um you know raising themselves up and pulling themselves through the ranks um i just wonder if that's perhaps something behind it. I mean, why did you choose to have Eleanor as sort of having been entitled to it and then having it taken away?
2: Like Megan said, um, I wanted Eleanor to have that sense of entitlement. I really wanted her to have um, not just a desire for security, but like a kind of a sense that she was entitled to the things that she thought she deserved um which sort of kind of increased a bit as the book went on I did want to make it clear that while she was in some ways um coming from a good place um that could be couched in some very like god I'm trying to think of a word other than entitled (laughs) privileged thank you yes privileged (laughs) um i did want that, that to be couched in a certain sense of privilege
0: do you think it was easier you know you kind of set out to do a darker version of this sort of tale um but do you think it's easier to go in a darker direction when you have that element of feeling entitled to something that you know is taken away from you and to get it back so it becomes almost like revenge or a you know, it's not quite as squeaky clean, I guess. <laughs> or, uh, you know, if if she just had came from absolute poverty and and made good on something, there it's well, yes, you can obviously be treated appallingly, and obviously people in her position were treated badly, um, but it might not have enough bitterness to drive them or. Mm or maybe make the maybe it's because of that sort of having lost something you know the something she had and it was taken away made her more inclined to deal with the devil as such
2: oh absolutely yes i uh, i really wanted something that would make it personal for her i um wanted her to feel as though not just that something that she just didn't have something, um, but that it had been taken away from her specifically and maliciously. And that formed a huge part of her motivation as she went through the book. And I think, as you say, if she was just somebody who uh, came from abject poverty and just sort of slowly worked her way up, I'm not sure if she would have had quite that same edge of bitterness to
1: her. Talking about bitterness and satisfaction and and what role that plays within a novel, I was thinking about how you've drawn Cinderella and Faustus together. And while I was reading the book and thinking up some questions, I was thinking about the different types of protagonists that they are. Whether or not she has um, riches in the first place, Cinderella, at the point the novel starts, has nothing and is granted riches as a way to elevate her social standing and secure her future. In contrast, we have Faustus, who already has everything, And is still satisfied. And in one reading I found of it, it just basically said, well, Faustus is bored, so he makes a deal with the devil, which is very different to Cinderella. (laughs) So, I mean, how did you feel approaching that in in your novel? And what do you think this tells us about gender inequality in archetypal stories such as these? When it
2: comes down to um, gender inequality in archetypal stories, the key area that satisfaction and dissatisfaction comes into play when you look at male and female characters is how that reflects on their agency if you ask me so like if you look at the very traditional types of stories um male characters are kind of expected to have a bit more drive about them a bit more of a get up and go um to seek their fortune and all of that sort of nonsense whereas female characters are generally portrayed as much more passive um Usually, the events of these fairy stories would just kind of happen to them rather than there'd be things that they go and get for themselves. So, um, Cinderella, for example, um, she's rewarded because she's good and kind, of course, but um, she has nothing and is lifted out of it because, you know, it's somebody else doing the lifting. Um, her goodness and kindness are. Things to be noticed rather than things which drive her forward as a character. And in some ways, her being satisfied with her lot in the very traditional tellings of the stories is almost like a demonstration of how good and kind she is, which is kind of, mm, that doesn't sit right with me. It really doesn't. When you contrast that with Faustus, he um, starts the play having everything and still being dissatisfied. But you in some ways are kind of primed to expect that from a character like him because the language that he uses to talk about him casually summoning the devil in the play is the same kind of language that you would hear from like all the sort of great classical heroes. His fatal flaw is a quest for knowledge and hubris. And those are all things that we're sort of primed to accept from a male protagonist, I think. So where the two intersect is kind of, I think, in the realm of agency and satisfaction, because Faustus's dissatisfaction gives him that kind of drive to go forward and make the plot happen. Whereas Cinderella in her story doesn't have that because she's fundamentally not the one driving the action. I really hope that makes sense.
1: No, totally. And when you think about some of the Cinderella versions we've read it's almost like the wishes just drop in her lap. I mean, you know, she sits there crying and then the fairy godmother appears. But obviously in some of the older ones, um, you have her, you know, watering the nut tree every day with her tears, you know, where her dead mother's soul resides and things like that, and asking for stuff and and being a little bit more proactive. But we seem to have lost that. Whereas, like you say, Faustus has always been a very agency fueled character. So hopefully Mm. we'll be seeing a bit more of, you know, (laughs) more Faustus Cinderella's in the future. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> when you were talking about that joe i i was kind of sitting here seething and oh god just, what have i done <laughs> no because i was agreeing with you because oh, okay, good. it really irritates like it, it more than irritates it pisses me off that cinderella is like you know rewarded for just sitting there and taking taking shit basically because if she were a bloke and you know, he was just put upon or whatever, he would not be rewarded for that. He would be ridiculed. He would be, you know, it would be like, Why haven't you taken the bull by the balls and just gone for it? Why haven't you done something about your situation? And that that really gets uh, rubs me the wrong way. I think, I think that's true. I also
3: really like that you said take the bull by I was gonna go the horns and then she was like, Nope, the the balls, the bull by the balls. <laughs> like, <well>, let that's just <laughs> Megan's version. of the famous phrase (laughs) but i I do um, i do totally agree actually i think that's a really really interesting point and uh just another another double standard to heap on our rather enormous stinky mountain of double standards (laughs) in narratives and i mean it's just terrible because it just means that you know when you have a female protagonist and in a in a situation like cinderella is in um She's rewarded for her apathy and and for taking it. This is the kind of story that ends up with the femme fatale and the evil villainess. Um, it's when a woman decides not that they're not going to take it and that they're going to reach out for some agency. And I feel like the the, the end path for someone like Cinderella is turning into like an evil stepmother, <laughs> a powerful queen. You
1: know, <laughs> um, I never thought I'd say this, but. I have to admit that Disney's three film um, series of Descendants was quite good in turning that stereotype around because the the one who was portrayed as good but eventually turns to be evil is the daughter of one of the classic princesses. And one of her songs is basically like, well, you know, that was supposed to be what happened to me. I was supposed to get these wishes and, and be the princess and, and just for it to fall into my lap. Whereas actually, the prince uh, ends up choosing the, the villain or villainess because she does go out and do stuff and she's fueled with social justice and she's trying to better herself and those back where she came from. So I like that even Disney <laughs> is now going, yeah,
0: it's, it's not a great look for us. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to bring the tone down, but that's a lie because I do. But <laughs>
3: <laughs> look, you've already you've already mentioned balls. I mean, the tone is on the floor. So.
0: And, well, it's just that uh, obviously fairy tales, folk tales—you know—often were, you know, they were kind of moral stories to tell women to deal with things and so on. And I, I can't help but think about these versions of Cinderella where she's rewarded for basically just sitting there and taking it. Especially when people use those phrases like "taking it," like it's a kind of a metaphor. But honestly, it is a bit like okay, married life is going to be rough. You're going to have to, you know, just lie there and take it like a good like a good British woman. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but you know. <laughs> it does it feels a bit like that. You know, like oh, your husband is going to treat you like shit probably and you know if if you just sit there and take it grin and bear it eventually like you'll be rewarded in paradise or whatever by the end. It, it kind of feels exactly like that story. While we
3: are on the subject of gender in fairy tales and how it sometimes diverges and sometimes it stays true, often the tale of Cinderella has a wicked stepmother. That's the, the version that everybody is most familiar with. Um, but you chose to feature a kid's stepfather, uh, instead, so what prompted you to focus on um, this slightly different relationship, and did that in any way alter the dynamics of the story?
2: Well, part of the reason I chose to um, have a wicked stepfather character is because um, a lot of the relationships between the heroines of fairy tales and their wicked stepmothers, all based around jealousy, usually focusing on appearances, and I really wanted to get rid of that element. It just it feels like something that is due to be retired. So I threw that out the window but um one of the main reasons why i decided that it would be um a, a wicked stepfather character is because um as a female domestic servant in the 19th century this would have been one of the most serious threats that eleanor could have faced um domestic servants as a social group in the 19th century had almost no legal protections whatsoever and um depended on their employers for housing, food, clothing, their ability to get another job. Um, They were often very isolated um, because they had hardly any time off. You'd get like an afternoon a month. And if you were working in a different city from your family, then you might not be able to go and see them. And all of that creates a very vulnerable group of people. Um, When I was doing my research for the historical setting, one of the things that became very clear very quickly was the widespread exploitation of this group of people. Um, there are some really horrible um, case records from trials um, where employers abusing their servants actually ended up in court, and don't look them up, seriously. But one of the most like nastily commonplace things that I found um, was in... So the Victorians had a lot of uh, reform institutions for quote-unquote fallen women to go and redeem themselves after they'd uh, usually had some kind of like sexual relationship outside marriage. And um, when you look at the admittance rec- records for these kinds of institutions, an enormous amount of people admitted were female domestic servants. And the um, the circumstance where they had lost their job, lost their homes um lost their prospects because they had been into some kind of sexual relationship which had been discovered was so common that in some institutions they just used to write oh yeah it's the usual story and for it to be that commonplace and that widespread it just it didn't really feel like something i could not include you know it would have felt really disingenuous um because i'm not really sure if there's ever a relationship that you could have in that context where it wouldn't have a massive and power balance. Like that's just, yeah, it just felt like something which needed to be said.
1: I've done research into the Victorian era and like you, you go to the crime records and you see what people have been in court for and yeah. the Victorians, I mean, you think what people used to do to each other in the middle ages was bad and it was, you know, persecution. But like you say, there's this sense of powerlessness in the Victorian age when it comes to women, And there is just no one for them to resort to there. It's almost as bad going to the police as it is standing up for themselves. It's just a terrible time. Um, And you read all these case reports and you go, if I put all this stuff in a book, people go, that never happens, but it really does. It's quite shocking. Yes. This is the thing. Like
2: it's, it's awful stuff. And like, interestingly um you said like in the middle ages it might not have been that bad but um i actually um am a history graduate and i looked at this kind of things when i was doing my degree and one of the things which happened um which sort of got lost as we progressed from the middle ages to the victorian period and i'm going to generalize wildly here so please history professors forgive me um because as industrialization began to grow the kind of like tight-knit social networks started to erode and in particular for women this had a real effect on them in society because in i don't know 1500 1600 you would have a much more tightly knit kinship network women would have um a support system of gossips which just meant you know female friends and those would be the people who they would turn to and rely on for advice and for when things got a bit tough maybe they'd go and stay with them for a bit just you know the kind of a kind of social support network, um, which we all need from time to time. But as industrialization grew and the sort of like the growth of the big cities happened, you get a really interesting demonization of the gossip as a figure. That's when gossip starts to be seen as a negative term and these sort of networks start to erode. And you don't like, they are still there in some in some form but you don't have the same kind of close-knit community that you might have had a few hundred years before we were talking to um Kate Hartfield
3: a few weeks ago um you know who wrote the embroidery book about this very thing actually um and about how there's this um this is idea kind of prevailing idea that gender equality specifically for women was like a kind of it had a chronological kind of march to it that it just got <laughs> better and better and better and better as the <laughs> centuries rolled by which is not true at all like you know we were saying that some of the the anglo-saxon women pre-norman conquest had more rights than they did after the norman conquest um you know when different social norms were imported um and they then some of those rights fell away and that's just really interesting that you know it it goes it kind of almost like with fashions it kind of goes up well you know maybe one day you can divorce your husband and keep half your stuff and the next you have no rights at all
2: Mm -hmm. I mean progress is never a straight line I suppose but you don't always expect it to have quite this many ups and downs yeah
0: yeah you've basically blown my mind regarding uh the word gossip I I just think it's really yeah I had no idea and but it, it makes total sense because, again, like anything, you know, yes, I'm generalizing here as well. But <laughs> you know, the patriarchy turns a word that is like good and represents this, a support network and and things that help women and, and goes, well, we don't want the women to be helped, so gossip is a bad word now. Uh, you're a horrible gossip, and then just changes. Yeah, I. <laughs> it's it's really. It's interesting and, and sadly just feels the same, like th- it could happen today as well. So as with all very old fairy tales, there
1: are hundreds of different versions of Cinderella. And in some of them, uh, the protagonist is actually male. But although they were around and collected by the Grimm's and, and everybody else, they've largely been omitted from modern day, modern day fairy tale books. So do you think that the story of Cinderella is an inherently female tale or one that naturally appeals to women. And do you think there is a place out there for a gender-swapped Cinderella? Would people like it?
2: Um, Well, I mean, I don't think that Cinderella is an inherently gendered story. I think uh, the bare bones of it mean that it's easy to apply a retelling of it to a protagonist of any gender. Um, It's certainly um, been tied up with ideas of demureness and domesticity which have been coded as female concerns for quite a long time but I don't think that's really what's at the heart of the story um when you get right down to the the bare bones of it it's um it's a rags to riches story about breaking out of a power structure um and you can if you remove the question of gender entirely it's about somebody who Feels trapped in a situation due to societal, familial pressure, um, and eventually manages to escape that. And I don't think that's necessarily an inherently feminine experience. It would certainly look different for a protagonist of a different gender. But, like, personally, that's something I'm really excited to see. Like, um, once I finish my TBR, because I have to get through the pile, that's my rule. Um, I really want to read Cinder the Fireplace Boy um, by Anna Mardle because that's a Cinderella retelling with a transmasculine protagonist and I'm really excited to see how that would play out because I think that would bring a really fresh perspective which like I'm not personally familiar with but I really want to know more about and yeah I just think that's a really interesting take and I definitely want to see more of
1: that kind of thing. Well there you are that Is two excellent recommendations, one for the book that Joe mentioned, and of course, one for the book that Joe wrote as well. (laughs) So, thank you so much, Joe, for coming and talking to us all about Cinderella and Faustus and wishes and all that stuff. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Oh, well, thank you for
0: having me. It's been really fun. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word, subscribe, and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.